Welcome back to the third and final World War II episode of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. When the Japanese were planning their attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, they knew that we would launch a counteroffensive. Their plan was to force us to attack strong points supported by interlocking air cover across the South Pacific. And through this process, wear out our Navy and what the Japanese considered the weak political will of the American people to carry on the war. This final World War II episode covers our counterattack, beginning after the Japanese retreat from Guadalcanal until the surrender ceremony aboard the USS Missouri battleship on September 2nd, 1945. But before diving into the history of naval actions, kamikaze suicide bombers, and close quarters marine fights against fanatical Japanese resistance through the jungles and underground cave systems across the Pacific, I'm going to start with a story of broken codes, an ethical dilemma, and ultimately, of an assassination. Our story begins in a basement in Pearl Harbor on April 14, 1943, with a coded message. Conveniently enough, we had thoroughly broken the Japanese naval codes by this point. And so only a few minutes after intercepting the code, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Laswell read the decrypted message, jumped out of his chair, and yelled, We've hit the jackpot! Because he now held in his hands the exact travel itinerary of Japanese Admiral Yamamoto, the architect of the attack on Pearl Harbor 16 months ago, and the commander-in-chief of the Imperial Japanese Navy. The full message revealed that Yamamoto would fly, escorted by six Zero fighters, from Rabul to Balalay at 0800 on April 18th. The decrypted message was quickly brought to the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Admiral Chester Nimitz. Nimitz read the decrypted message, looked up, and asked to nobody in particular, do we try and get him? There were some good arguments against the attack. The only American fighter with the range to intercept Yamamoto's flight was the Army's P-38 Lightning, and even then, only with supplementary fuel tanks. If the Japanese were able to deduce that the unusual appearance of Army fighters far from their normal patrol zones was not just a lucky coincidence, they could very well realize that their operational codes were broken and changed them. Even if the Allies could break the new set of Japanese codes, the information blackout until we did would cost thousands of lives and imperil ongoing operations. And then there was the moral question. Today, we, the United States, conduct targeted killings on an almost daily basis via drone strikes and other methods. But almost 80 years ago, the speed of communication and war was just getting fast enough to allow these sorts of operations to take place. Of course, men on both sides were getting shot, drowned, burned to death, and blown to bits every day. But whether the United States wanted to get into the business of targeting specific individuals was still an open question at that point. How important was killing Yamamoto? Nimitz weighed the risks and morals of the decision and decided that yes, killing Admiral Yamamoto was a legitimate military operation and that the benefits outweighed the risks. After the war, there's a story that emerged that Nimitz radioed Washington about the choice and that it was President Roosevelt who made the midnight decision to kill Yamamoto. But if so, there's no record of it. And sure, I guess the records could have been destroyed, but we have records from many far more controversial decisions throughout the war, which weren't destroyed. And I personally think that there's no evidence to suggest that Nimitz himself didn't weigh the factors 
and ultimately make the decision to kill Yamamoto, reflecting the sentiment of one of the cryptologists in the basement, where the original message was decrypted to, quote, get that SOB. And so, late in the night on April 17th, a squadron of 18 Army P-38 pilots took off from Guadalcanal with precise coordinates and orders to shoot down anything that flew once they arrived at their destination in the morning. And Yamamoto was right on time. The 18 P-38 pilots dropped their external fuel tanks and broke into two groups. All but four of the P-38s flew up high to run interference on any Japanese fighters, while the other four beelined towards the two escorted fighter bombers, one of which carried Yamamoto. The two bombers immediately split. One dashed inland over the island of Bougainville, and the other sprinted out to sea. Pursuing the bomber fleeing inland, Lieutenant Barber lined up the bomber in his gun sights, while his wingman fended off Japanese escorting zeros and fired into the bomber's tail section. Decades later, Barber described watching as his bullets ripped into the bomber and, quote, its rudder and a good portion of its vertical tail fin came off. The mortally wounded Japanese plane spun and crashed into a fireball of red among the green of the mountainous jungle. Lieutenant Barber turned his plane and sped after the other bomber, which had fled out to sea, flying so low that its props made waves and spit up sea spray in its wake. Again, it was Lieutenant Barber who got the killing shot, as the rest of the P-38s fended off the escorting Zeros, opening up with his 50 caliber machine guns and 20 millimeter cannon. At close enough range where he could see and hear the shells ripping apart the bomber's fuselage, the low-flying plane refused to go down. Blow up, goddammit, Barber screamed. What do I have to do? And finally, as he described it, a huge puff of smoke, followed by an orange flame, burst from the right engine cowling, and the second Japanese bomber disintegrated into the sea. Yamamoto was now, definitively, dead. We made a point of announcing that our Australian allies reported the group of Japanese planes, which turned out to be a believable enough cover story that the Japanese did not change their codes. It was a total victory. The death of a national hero was a huge morale shock in Japan, and coming exactly one year and a day after the Battle of Midway, there could be no doubt now that the strategic initiative was fully in American hands. By the middle of 1943, the American fleet was also reaping the full rewards of Roosevelt's Two Oceans Act building boom, which was redoubled immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. The first of what would eventually be 24 Essex-class fleet carriers were being commissioned and armed with Hellcat and Corsair fighters and Helldiver and Avenger-class bombers. While Japan's marquee fighter, the Nimble Zero, was the best in the Pacific back in 1941, the new American plane classes, well, they just outclassed their Japanese counterparts in literally every way. And to put these carrier numbers in context, Japan possessed six fleet carriers when they attacked us at Pearl Harbor, had promptly lost four in the Battle of Midway, and would go on to only build five more fleet-sized carriers throughout the rest of the war, two of which were completed so late in the war and bombed in port that they never saw action against an American ship. The ratio is at least as lopsided when you compare the more than 1,000 battleships, escort carriers, cruisers, destroyers, frigates, submarines, and amphibious ships that the Navy would produce over the course of the war. In fact, 
to give you an idea of the literally unparalleled in world history naval building boom that was occurring, the United States Navy ended the war with 6,768 commissioned ships in service when you include the 2,700 amphibious craft, which of course, all that doesn't even include the hundreds of ships sunk by enemy fire, weather, mishap, and all of the other eccentricities of wartime. Against this impending tidal wave of steel coming their way, the Japanese were badly overextended. In the Pacific, the Japanese had the same vulnerability as an island power that the British faced, and the United States' submarine forces over time would take advantage of the Japanese homeland's need to ship resources from across their far-flung empire to the homeland, and then ship weapons, food, fuel, and every other conceivable good back out to China and the hundreds of outposts spread across tens of millions of square miles of Pacific Ocean. Japan simply did not have the merchant marine to support the demand, and because of their frantic need to produce capital ships to take on the American fleet for control of the sea, they are forced to badly underinvest in the escort ships needed to guard the merchant marine fleet that they did have. This combination meant that the submarine war absolutely slaughtered Japanese shipping. When we entered the war, the United States Navy possessed only 73 submarines, and President Roosevelt immediately unleashed them against all Japanese targets. Pre-war conventions and treaties be damned. The problem was that these submarines were short on torpedoes, and like the early German torpedoes, our torpedoes did not work very well. They variously ran too deep, turned back on the submarine which launched them, or hit a Japanese ship and just lodged into the side without exploding. Even worse, while Japanese ships were literally returning to port with unexploded American torpedoes in their sides, the Navy Bureau of Ordnance refused to believe that their torpedoes were faulty and blamed submarine captains for poor shooting. Still another early factor stacked essentially in favor of Japanese trade was official naval submarine policy. It directed submarines to preferentially target enemy heavy warships, which had the unfortunate habit of fighting back instead of the defenseless merchants and tankers which the Japanese simply did not have enough light ships to convoy safely. After the first year of war in the Pacific, this slowly began to change, and the Japanese toll was high. Unlike the German system, American submarines early in the war were lone wolves, assigned to a geographic area where they hunted for any individual Japanese merchantmen unlucky enough to be spotted in their quadrant. Although this changed as more submarines came online in 1944 and 45. Aboard the old World War II-era submarines, life was... not great. The boats were super small, the men shared racks in a delightful process called hot racking because the tiny little coffin rack that you split with another sailor was still hot from his body heat when you swapped spots so you could go to sleep. There was no bath, no shower, just a, a bucket and a sponge. Sailors ate in whatever corner they could find, and the air during long dives became absolutely fetid with cigarette smoke and body odor and fumes. The two-month-long patrols these boats went on were trying, but for all of 1942, the submarine force achieved very little success. This changed in early 1943 when Charles Lockwood became the new commander of submarines in the South Pacific. He took the reports of faulty torpedoes seriously and forced the Washington, D.C. Corps of the Navy to design a better torpedo. He ushered in a new and improved class of long-range submarine and unleashed the full might of the exponentially expanding submarine force against the practically defenseless Japanese merchant fleet. 
wartime predation by our submarines got so bad that the Japanese essentially just ran out of ships. Their oil tankers only very inconsistently got through from what is today Indonesia, and so they resorted to fueling their ships with soybean oil, which had the effect of helping starve the population of Japan and the unfortunate countries they ruled. Essentially, our submarines did to the resource-poor island nation of Japan what German U-boats tried to do to the resource-poor island nation of Great Britain by starving it of all the resources needed to fight a modern war. By 1944, our submarines were among the best in the world. They were larger and stronger than any before the start of the war and carried both surface and air search radars, night periscopes, and new acoustic homing torpedoes. The crowning jewel achievement of the submarine force was the sinking of the Japanese supercarrier Shinano. The Shinano started construction as the third in a class of super battleships, but was converted halfway through her construction into an armored carrier displacing 71,890 tons when fully loaded, making it the largest carrier ever built until 1961 when the U.S. Navy commissioned the nuclear-powered Enterprise. The Shinano was in a vulnerable position when she was torpedoed, since she was just shifting ports within Japan to evade U.S. bombing and not fully seaworthy when she was spotted by the USS Archerfish. The Archerfish fired a six-torpedo spread. Four of those torpedoes hit just above the blister armor belt and opened the Shinano up to the sea. Ten days after her commissioning, and after only 16 hours at sea, the largest, most expensive carrier of the war was sunk. Elsewhere, in 1943, the advance in the Southern Pacific continued unabated. The main complicating factor was the fact that, unlike the Northern Pacific campaign, which was hopping from island to island in a beeline for mainland Japan, MacArthur had essentially committed the United States to a parallel Southern strategy of advance through his promise of, I will return, when he evacuated from the Philippines. There is a lot to say about MacArthur on a personal level. He was undoubtedly a genius. He was a hero a dozen times over in World War I. He was a public darling. At the same time, he was pretty aptly described by Admiral Halsey's 1943 letter to Admiral Nimitz as a, quote, self-advertising son of a bitch. So I'm going to save a deeper dive into MacArthur for the next episode, in which we'll cover his role in the years following World War II and the Korean War. But for now, uh, it's enough to know that MacArthur exercised strategic control over all military operations in the Southwest Pacific. Halsey had to work under him, and despite a few rocky patches between the two giants of the war, operations proceeded pretty darn well in the theater against what the Japanese termed their new operational policy of defending individual strongpoints to the literal last man and the belief that Yamamoto Dayashi, which roughly translates into Japanese spirit, and represented what the generals in charge of the Japanese government believed was the, quote, brave, daring, and indomitable spirit of the Japanese people, and that this Yamamoto Dayashi would eventually triumph over American wealth and numbers. And if nothing else, it would hopefully wear down the American will to fight and enable a negotiated peace which would leave Japan with something. To catalog the campaigns fully and faithfully, to steal a paragraph from legendary naval historian Craig Simon's World War II at Sea book, which is very well worth reading, would require a detailed account of every Allied landing, 
every Japanese counterattack, every night surface action, and every bitterly contested yard of jungle. And even then, it would fail to do justice to either the events or the participants. Many of the operations, however, and especially the naval battles, followed a common pattern. First, because the Americans could select their targets from a score or more of possible invasion sites, they often faced relatively modest initial opposition on the beach. Soon, however, and often within hours, the Japanese react, first with air assaults, and then with a naval surface force, and finally, with overland attacks through the jungle. The moment the Allies stepped ashore, they knew that a Japanese counterpunch was only a matter of time, and usually not very much time. Since the moment of greatest danger to the invaders was when the big landing ships were unloading, a lot depended on how quickly the transport and amphibious ships could get in, unload, and get out. After a few iterations, by which I mean bloody island slogs where hundreds of men died and blood seeped into the sand and jungle, across the remote Samoan island chain. We had the unloading process down. What had taken five days at Guadalcanal now took one, but we still had to deal with Japanese strafing runs and bombers launched from nearby islands over beaches and with the surface units in the middle of the night. In these middle-of-the-night actions, Japan's world-leading, long-range, long-lance torpedoes, which were fueled by compressed oxygen, squared off against superior American radar technology which gave us a huge night-fighting gunfire advantage, more than reversing the previous Japanese advantage in night-fighting. It took 32,000 army soldiers and 2,000 marines to capture the first island of Munda against 5,000 Japanese defenders at the cost of 1,200 killed in action and twice as many wounded. Following this slugfest, and looking at the prospect of fighting the twice as numerous Japanese dug into the island of Kalumbangara, MacArthur and the Navy pushed through what is today known as the island-hopping strategy of bypassing the most strongly held Japanese positions whenever possible and chose to attack the island of Vela Lavella, which was defended by a mere 250 Japanese soldiers. This strategy to leave large garrisons of Japanese behind the front line, as it were, was descended from versions of War Plan Orange, if you remember back to the interwar episode, and it saved tens of thousands of lives on both sides and was one of the most important strategic decisions of the Pacific War. This decision to leave heavily armed, unsinkable aircraft carriers, aka islands, in the rear was only possible because of the complete naval superiority we were wresting away from the Japanese. Had the Japanese been able to supply and transport troops between the islands and then attack our islands in the rear, this strategy would have been impossible. Bypass Japanese garrisons were either evacuated or simply left to wither on the vine. Isolated Japanese garrisons resorted to farming, fishing, and for the most part, they surrendered after World War II. But there were also a few holdouts who surrendered or were killed throughout the late 40s, the 50s, 60s, and finally, the last two who formally surrendered in 1974, 29 years after the war had officially ended. The Southern Campaign was not moving fast enough for Admiral King's liking. Instead of the relatively small leaps of the island hopping MacArthur was conducting, King envisioned leaps of hundreds of miles at a time across the Pacific. The central route would allow the Navy to come into direct conflict with the remaining Japanese fleet. The environment would be better, and ultimately, 
was a more direct route to the Japanese homeland. As soon as we seized a few islands near the homeland, we could begin building massive air bases and bomb the war machine to cinders at its source. MacArthur, who was ever conscious of any slight and impact to his public image, was not happy about this. He suspected that President Roosevelt was trying to sabotage the South Pacific campaign out of fear that a victorious and known Republican MacArthur would wage an upcoming 1944 presidential campaign against him. This accusation is not true, and I think it was pretty clear that we would have and should have focused entirely on the Central Pacific route from the beginning had MacArthur and his star power not forced a Southern strategy, but that's just me. With the addition of the new, massive Essex-class carriers rolling out of dockyards every month, we had the portable air power, and down the center we went. Twelve battleships, nine fleet carriers, eleven smaller carriers, twelve cruisers, and enough amphibious ships to crush island after island descended on the Japanese under the command of Admiral Raymond Spruance, the namesake of my first ship in the Navy, good old DDG-111. The first target was Tarawa, part of the Gilbert Island chain. It was a tiny, tiny, one square mile atoll whose highest elevation is 10 feet, and most of the surface area was taken up by a Japanese airfield that they used to command thousands of square miles of sea lanes around the atoll. Despite its small size, Tarawa was defended by 5,000 well-supplied and superbly fortified Japanese troops. The garrison's commander told his men, A million men cannot take Tarawa in a hundred years. Well, listen up and we'll find out if he was right. On the American side, General Smith, who led the assault on Tarawa, promised his men that the fortress atoll would be softened up with the, quote, greatest concentration of aerial bombardment and naval gunfire in the history of warfare. This bombardment began with the battleship Maryland's eight 16-inch main batteries at 0500. The rest of the massive invasion fleet followed suit. Hundreds of planes dropped a rain of bombs on the island. Surely no mortal man could live through such a destroying power, a journalist from Time magazine wrote. The island shook with the fury of 3,000 tons of explosives, and when the dust settled, there was not a stick on the island standing. The landing craft moved in at 0830, and the Japanese guns were silent, presumably blown away by this greatest concentration of firepower in human history up to this point. And then, when the landing craft were half a mile away, the Japanese guns opened up all at once. You see, this awesome firepower dropped on the island didn't do much against the heavy fortifications, and the ordnance dropped and shot at the island mostly missed the fortified bunkers, and the Marines advancing over coral reefs against Japanese artillery paid the price. In the first opposed beach landing of the Pacific War, Marines climbed out of their Higgins boats in the later waves to wade ashore from hundreds of yards out and a few feet of water against Japanese machine gun fire. Now stop. Think about this. Imagine wading in full combat gear through waist-deep water, your waterlogged boots kept getting caught on coral and sucked in by the sand across seven football fields, all while getting shot at. There's no turning back. There's nowhere to run to. Advance and kill the enemy or die in the water just like the man next to you did. If you were unlucky, 
you've got assigned to drag artillery across the reef with ropes while getting shot at. Units suffered casualty rates above 70% before the first Marine set foot on the beach. A naval officer watching from the bridge of his ship wrote that, The water never seemed clear of men. They kept falling and falling and falling and falling, singly in groups and in rows. On the first night on the beach, Japanese troops maneuvered behind our lines on the fragile beachhead we had established and set up machine gun positions inside broken down American Amtrak vehicles and sprayed death from behind. On the second day, the Marines broke part of the Japanese defensive line and split the garrison in two. A tank which had made it ashore drove over pillboxes, crushing them and the Japanese inside under its weight and provided the cover for flamethrower-equipped troops who followed up to burn alive any Japanese troops which survived the falling rubble. On the third day, it was revealed that, in fact, it only takes 20,000 Marines three days to take the fortress atoll. Our weapons have been destroyed, and from now on, everyone is attempting a final charge. May Japan exist for 10,000 years, the commander radioed Tokyo from his bunker as his lines crumbled. The last 146 men of the Japanese garrison made a bonsai charge at 0400 on November 22nd. The charge failed, and Tarawa fell under American control. After 76 hours, only 17 of the 4,800 Japanese defenders on the island were taken alive. More than 1,000 assaulting Americans were killed, and 3,000 more were wounded, taking less than one square mile of land. Over the next several days, smaller islands in the vicinity were captured one by one at the cost of another 1,000 American dead and 2,200 wounded. The Gilbert Island Campaign was another American victory, but the kind that the new Japanese plan was counting on. Sure, Japanese losses were far greater, but the Japanese were betting on the near-unlimited political will of their government and people. They would make numerically greater sacrifices and destroy our will to fight, in theory anyway. The fact was, though, that the Japanese may have been right, and that the so-called victories along the lines of Tarawa were politically damaging at home. Congress called for an investigation. In the end, though, the images of the dead rotting away on faraway beaches brought to every town and city in the country in color for the first time ever in the form of movie newsreels. Instead, stiffened American resolve for retribution. The next island chain which needed to be taken in our march across the Pacific was the Marshall Islands, a group of 32 coral atolls about 600 miles northwest of the bloodletting at Tarawa. After the slaughter of Benito Island, Tarawa, the Allies were concerned that the main Marshall Island atoll of Kwajalein would be even more costly since it was larger and the Japanese had been fortifying it since the 1920s when they had been granted the island as part of a League of Nations mandate. Almost every member of Nimitz's staff argued that the next offensive should be against a smaller, outer island instead of against the main Japanese base at Kwajalein, but Nimitz overruled them. He believed that the lessons from the Battle of Tarawa could be applied. The first lesson was that the bombardment ashore had been insufficient. If last time an island was merely subjected to the greatest concentration of aerial bombardment and naval gunfire in the history of warfare, this time we were going to obliterate the island wholesale. 
long-range B-24 bombers ran endless runs over the quickly charred islands. Individual ships were assigned specific pillboxes to neutralize, and they were expected to close in to short range to do the job with armor-piercing shells. More tracked landing craft would be used to prevent Marines from having to pick their way ashore over coral while dodging bullets, and 37mm guns would be added to the landing craft to alleviate the need to drag artillery by hand across coral reefs. Properly prepared, at least in theory, we launched twin assaults on the main islands of Kwajalein to the south and Roy Namur to the north on January 31st, 1944. It turned out that the lessons of Tarawa were well learned. The Japanese had been shattered by the prolonged and close-in pre-invasion bombardment. The survivors were shell-shocked and disoriented. On Kwajalein Island, one lone palm tree still stood. The official U.S. Army history of the battle quotes a soldier as saying, The entire island looked as if it had been picked up at 20,000 feet and then dropped. Four days later, both islands had been fully secured at relatively little cost. American pilots had literally run out of targets on the island, and the Japanese surface fleet, which even at the height of its power would have been no match for U.S. Task Force 58 assaulting the island chain, was not going to expend its precious fighting power defending an outer ring of islands. Of course, though, we were not the only ones who could learn from past battles, and the Japanese now realized that beach line defenses were too vulnerable to naval and aerial bombardment. Their upcoming defense-in-depth strategy during the Marianas Islands campaign was much harder to overcome than the thin beachfront line on Kwajalein. The third leap was towards Saipan, a small island just north of Guam and 1,500 miles farther northwest of Kwajalein. This spot in the Pacific loomed large for both American and Japanese naval planning. Both sides had assumed that this area in the Philippine Sea would be the rough spot of the decisive Mahanian Battle of the War, and the Japanese were saving the strength of their fleet to protect it. If we, the United States, managed to capture the islands of Guam and Saipan, we would have the air bases in position to sever Japan's lines of communication to their rich Southeast Asian possessions, and from which to launch B-29 Super Fortress bombers, which could finally reach out and devastate the Japanese mainland, including the capital of Tokyo, with up to 10 tons of high explosives, incendiary shells, or naval mines in each bomb bay. For the Japanese, the bombing of the homeland would not only be another nail in the coffin of their war effort, but culturally, it was completely unacceptable. This would be the final fleet showdown and the Japanese would give it everything they had, which was still quite a lot. Leading the assault on Saipan was again Task Force 58, now beefed up to an unbelievable 15 aircraft carriers, 7 battleships, 11 cruisers, and 86 destroyers, which would provide cover for a landing force larger than the one which was simultaneously landing on the beaches of Normandy, France. With the task force assembled off the coast of the island of Saipan, shore bombardment began on June 11, 1944. Fifteen battleships put more than 165,000 shells downrange, and on the 15th, at 0700, more than 300 landing craft delivered 8,000 marines ashore under the cover of continuous naval fire. 
Saipan is a mountainous island and the Japanese artillery positions inside of natural caves and the ones dug by hand into the sides of mountains facing the beach had pretty much survived the bombardment and so once again, it was a bloody beach. The Japanese did not make an extended stand on the beach though and by nightfall, the Marines had advanced six miles inland. Japanese counterattacked at night. They were repulsed, but it began a cycle which would last for a month of nights spent wide awake under the threat of frontline infiltration and bonsai charges. The Japanese high command was surprised by the timing of this attack. We were moving faster than they had imagined, and the Imperial Japanese Navy scrambled to assemble and put to sea the full weight of their battered but still impressive Navy. To meet the approaching threat, Japanese Admiral Ozawa led a fleet centered around four full-size carriers, five smaller carriers, and two of the heaviest super battleships ever built, the Yamamoto and Mushashi, which had been designed from day one with just such a decisive fleet battle in mind. The problem with the nearly 500 planes that the carriers could collectively launch were the Japanese pilots. While Japanese carrier pilots were hands down the best in the world back in 1941 and 1942, the veterans had it tritted out and the Japanese kept their aces in the line of fire for too long, which prevented them from recycling their knowledge into new recruits like we did with our best pilots and aces. Our submarines were also taking such a toll on the Japanese merchant marine that they lacked the spare fuel capacity for their trainees to log the necessary number of flight hours that they should have received. Carrier aviation is a field where training and experience absolutely matter, and new Japanese pilots just did not have either. Ozawa's one advantage was the range of his planes and the control of nearby islands. Japanese planes were generally designed without armor, which meant that despite their generally inferior design and performance by this point in the war, they were much lighter and could launch from beyond the range of an American counterattack. And if they used the island of Guam to land, refuel, and rearm, they could then bomb the Americans again on the way back to their own carriers, all while we Americans were powerless to counterstrike if the Japanese fleet played its cards perfectly. But any hope of surprise against the American fleet was badly dashed. Not only had American intelligence recovered the rough battle plans from a Japanese plane crash, but the Japanese carrier fleet had been spotted by at least 11 of our submarines lurking outside of Japanese ports, and the information of its sailing had been radioed back to Fleet HQ at Pearl Harbor. The Battle of the Philippine Sea, the largest aircraft carrier battle of the war, began slowly. The 5th Fleet Commander, Admiral Spruins, repeatedly overrode the proposals of senior officers under him, descended carrier force out to attack the Japanese carrier force, that we knew was somewhere west of Saipan in order to protect our landings. Finally, on June 19th, the Japanese began launching planes in their first and second wave of strikes. But even as the launches began, the battle began turning against them. Because the Japanese by this point in the war had lost so many destroyers that they could not properly screen their capital ships, and because the Japanese had committed too many seaplanes to scouting for the U.S. fleet and not enough in retrospect to search nearby areas for submarines, the submarine USS Albacore was able to pull within torpedo range of Japan's brand new, most powerful carrier, the Taiho, 
and launch a six torpedo spread. Five torpedoes missed, but one did not, and the detonation tore a hole in the Taiho's starboard side and fractured the aviation fuel tanks. The Taiho continued to launch two more waves of aircraft while her damage control parties worked to repair the damage. Meanwhile, leaking aviation gasoline began vaporizing and spreading. The crew recognized the danger, but, demonstrating the persistent Japanese weakness in damage control knowledge and training, could not pump out the leaking gas and did not cover the fuel with flame suppressant foam. Inside the Taiho's enclosed hangars, fumes built up, and at 14.30, six and a half hours after the initial torpedo hit, there must have been a spark. The sides of the Taiho blew out and she began to settle in the water, doomed. Admiral Ozawa quickly transferred to a nearby cruiser, and soon after, the Taiho was torn apart by thunderous secondary explosions and quickly sank, taking 1,650 officers and men still attempting to save the ship with her. USS Cavella, another submarine, meanwhile had sunk the carrier Shokaku, setting the Japanese even farther from possible victory. In the air, as the Taiho dealt with her mortal torpedo wound from early in the battle, the fight was unfolding. As waves of Japanese dive and torpedo bombers escorted by fighters flew towards the American carrier force, our escort picket ship's radars provided enough advance warning where we launched 450 fighters to meet the oncoming waves of Japanese planes. They did not get through. Most were shot down by our fighter screen, and the rest confronted an absolute wall of anti-aircraft fire. The first Japanese wave sacrificed 42 planes in return for one ineffectual bomb strike against the battleship USS South Dakota. The second lost 95 out of the 109 planes return for two minor hits on U.S. ships. And the third strike was sent too far north, but still managed to lose seven aircraft against Hellcat fighters, which raced to intercept the wave. And the fourth wave of 82 aircraft lost all but nine of their number without doing any damage to a single U.S. ship. The end result of this air battle, which took place over the course of less than four hours, was that Japanese carrier air power was virtually eliminated. A final plane tally from all of the day's waves and other operations show a score of about 30 American planes lost to 350 Japanese planes lost, lending the day's proceedings the name, the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. On the cruiser he was now using as his flagship, Ozawa was misled as to the magnitude of his aircraft losses, many more of which he believed had safely landed in Guam after bombing the U.S. fleet and about the magnitude of the losses inflicted on the American fleet, which he believed were significant. That night, Task Force 58 sailed west to attack the Japanese at dawn. Search patrols were put up at first light. Early morning American searches on June 20th could not locate the Japanese fleet, and follow-on midday searches by Hellcat fighter pilots also came up empty. Finally, at 1540, a sighting was verified. The Japanese fleet was 275 miles out, moving due west at a speed of 20 knots, at the limit of Task Force 58's strike range, with daylight slipping away. Admiral Michener decided on an all-out strike. After the first wave launched, a clarifying message arrived indicating that the Japanese fleet was 60 miles farther out than previously indicated. 
This put the attacking planes at the absolute limits of fuel and meant that the returning planes would have to attempt night landings, which were not routine during World War II. Admiral Michener canceled the second wave of aircraft, but did not recall the first launch. 226 planes made their way for the Japanese fleet and soon arrived over it before sunset. The depleted 35-plane cover that Ozawa was able to muster was completely overwhelmed by the 226 incoming aircraft. Two oilers and the Japanese carrier Hayo were sunk. Three other Japanese carriers and a battleship were damaged before the pilots turned back, racing daylight in their dangerously low fuel gauges east. Knowing that his aviators would have difficulty finding their carriers in the dark, and that they didn't have the fuel to spare for searching, Captain Joseph Clark of the Hornet mirrored the decision that Admiral Spruins had made all the way back in 1942 during the last stages of the Battle of Midway, and made the risky choice to illuminate his carrier, shining searchlights up into the night, which made his ship an easy target for any enemy submarines or Japanese counterattacking aircraft. Admiral Michener saw what Clark was doing and backed up the decision, ordering every carrier in Task Force 58 lit up in spite of the risks. Picket destroyers fired star shells to help the aircraft find their task groups, and planes were given clearance to land on any available flight deck. Despite the emergency measures, about 60 planes were ditched into the sea as their fuel ran out, while another 20 were lost due to nighttime landing conditions. 49 of the 209 aircraft crew, which were forced to land their planes into the water as their fuel ran dry, were never recovered. The total bill for the battle on the Japanese side was three carriers, more than 400 airplanes, and most of the pilots with them. We Americans lost no ships, just over 100 planes, and most of the planes were due to running out of fuel and not enemy action. Japanese sea power was now completely broken, but the Marianas campaign was not yet over. On Saipan, cut off and without any hope of resupply, the Japanese were determined to fight to the last man. The commanding general of the Japanese forces on the island, General Saito, organized his troops into a line anchored on Mount Tepetachu in central Saipan. The American nicknames given to the surrounding geography, Hell's Pocket, Purple Heart Ridge, and Death Valley can clue you into the severity of the fighting there. The Japanese used the natural volcanic caves to hide during the day and attacked at night. In response, the Marines gradually developed brutal tactics for clearing the caves with flamethrower teams. By July 6th, the Japanese had no further retreat. One surviving Japanese major put it this way, the final decisive action had been simply one of two courses. First, to remain as we were and to starve to death. Or secondly, to make a last attack and fight to the finish. In the Japanese military mindset of the time, this was no choice. There would be a last attack. General Saito radioed to the Imperial General Headquarters in Tokyo. I have issued the following order. On the 7th, the day after tomorrow, we will advance to attack the American forces and we will all die an honorable death. Each man will kill 10 Americans. Orders went out to all remaining troops and the civilians on the island. Saito's final address from his mountain cave to his assembled troops read, in part, We have no materials with which to fight, and our artillery for attack has been completely destroyed. Our comrades have fallen one after another. 
the barbarous attack of the enemy is being continued, and we are dying without avail under the violent shelling and bombing. Whether we attack or whether we stay where we are, there is only death. However, in death, there is life. We must utilize this opportunity to exalt true Japanese manhood. I will advance with those of you who remain to deliver still another blow against the American devils and leave my bones on Saipan as a bulwark of the Pacific. And so it was on dawn, July 7th, with a group of 12 men carrying a giant red flag in the lead. The remaining 4,000 able-bodied soldiers charged forward in the largest bonsai charge of the war. Behind them came the wounded, who were bandaged up and on crutches, armed with knives and sometimes, literally, sharpened sticks. The Japanese surged from their caves at once and over our front lines. The 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 105th Infantry Regiment had an almost 100% casualty rate. Over just the next 15 hours of hand-to-hand fighting, over 4,300 Japanese and 2,000 U.S. soldiers were killed. By the 9th, the island of Saipan was secure. Almost the entire Japanese garrison of 32,000 troops died. 3,500 U.S. soldiers and Marines died taking the island, and another 10,500 were wounded in what was another depressing record for taking an island. There were, of course, other battles at sea. The last big one was the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which is actually probably the biggest naval battle in human history, with more than 200,000 sailors participating. The same logic by which the Japanese felt compelled to strike against us at Pearl Harbor compelled them to commit essentially every ship they had left afloat to yet another attempt at a decisive battle. If we retook the Philippines, we would completely cut off the Japanese from their oil source in Southeast Asia, and their fleet would be stuck in port without the oil to get underway, much like the Italian Navy had been for much of the war. Japanese naval air power was practically non-existent after the Battle of the Philippine Sea, but they still had a powerful conventional surface fleet of battleships and heavy cruisers. Without airplanes or pilots, the Imperial Japanese Navy was reduced to using their now empty carriers as bait to attract the attention of our fleet, while this cruiser and battleship force attempted to destroy our transports landing troops on the Pacific island of Leyte. By sinking our transports, our invasion would be delayed and buy some time for Japan's leaders to seek a settlement short of unconditional surrender. The army began their landings on the island of Leyte in the middle of the Philippines on the morning of October 20th, while General MacArthur watched from the deck of a cruiser just offshore amid an invasion fleet of hundreds of ships. That afternoon, MacArthur made a brief excursion ashore to fulfill his promise of 1942 that he would return. In typical MacArthur fashion, he announced, People of the Philippines, I have returned. For your homes and hearths, strike. For future generations of your sons and daughters, strike. In the name of the sacred dead, strike. That same morning, Admiral Ozawa's now empty Japanese carrier decoy sailed south, knowing that they were being sent to draw off the American fleet and not expecting to return. Ironically, just as they were making no attempt at concealment, we Americans completely missed the sailing of this large battle force. The Japanese battleship fleet, under Admiral Kurita, sailed from Singapore at the same time. This surface force, though, was not as lucky. 
they were not hoping to be seen, but they were by a brace of American submarines which ambushed them at dawn, sinking two heavy cruisers and sending a third back to port. The reports of the Japanese surface forces position and course allowed Admiral Halsey's task force to launch a two-carrier attack wave with a simple order to strike, repeat, strike. You might be able to guess the outcome. There were more than a thousand carrier-based aircraft on 18 American aircraft carriers in the vicinity. We had discovered the surface component of the Japanese fleet that they had wanted to keep hidden. That component had no air cover. They were bombed without mercy. The Japanese did have some land-based aircraft, and they were able to get in some lucky hits, one of which sunk the aircraft carrier Princeton when a lone bomb exploded among six refueling torpedo planes. But that was not enough to even the score. The unsinkable super battleship Mushashi came under attack by a swarm of bombers and was sunk after an impressive amount of abuse, including 17 bomb hits, including 17 bomb and 20 torpedo hits. The Japanese surface force finally turned back after losing a handful of other ships and never came within gun range of any American ship. It took until 1640 in the afternoon for the U.S. Navy to spot the decoy force of four Japanese carriers, two light cruisers, and five destroyers when they were just 300 miles away. Halsey took his fleet north in pursuit with everything he had. This unleashed a series of errors. There were communication breakdowns and misjudgments. In the end, not a single ship was left to guard the San Bernardino Strait, where the Japanese surface fleet would have to sail past to attack the vulnerable transports, and only a weak force of destroyers and escort carriers were left to guard the hundreds of transport ships in the Leyte Harbor. Halsey believed that the Japanese surface force had been effectively destroyed. It had not, and at night, when he knew that air attack would be less effective, the Japanese commander turned his surface force around for battle once more, and what he radioed to Tokyo would be a final attack, the naval equivalent of a bonsai charge. Halsey ignored all of the warnings regarding this reversal, all of the intelligence that the carrier force was a decoy, and all of the good advice that he was given to leave a guard force in the straits. Skipping over a lot of detail, Halsey's task force crushes the decoy carriers. All four were summarily sunk. Meanwhile, the real battle occurred hundreds of miles to the south. Despite the earlier losses, the Japanese battleship force was still powerful, with four battleships, including the super battleship Yamoto, six heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 11 destroyers. It passed through the San Bernardino Straits unseen and emerged just off of Leyte Gulf in a complete surprise to the small force guarding the landing. All 16 escort carriers launched all 450 of their very old and pretty uselessly armed planes. The small destroyers and even smaller destroyer escorts raced at flank speed towards the Japanese force in a virtual suicide charge, shooting torpedoes and laying smoke screens to cover the retreat of the slow escort carriers, which plodded away under the Japanese battleship's guns. Admiral Kurita did not know that the carrier decoy had succeeded in drawing off the fleet carriers. The ferocity of the air attack and the destroyer charge convinced them that he was facing the main battle fleet and not the soft force that he was actually opposing. Facing just slow escort carriers, he could have expected a sacrifice to be worth it since his faster ships could intermix with them, thunder away at them with heavy guns, and extract a horrible price. 
But if, as he now thought, there were heavy ships lurking nearby to screen the carriers, there was no hope without air support of his own. The battle and communication on both sides was confusing, and convinced as he was by the ferocity of the initial attack, Admiral Karuta retreated. The American guarding force lost two escort carriers, two destroyers, and destroyer escort. Over a thousand Americans died, comparable to the combined losses of American men and ships at the battles of the Coral Sea and Midway. The Japanese lost three cruisers and withdrew, rather than advancing to sink troops and supply ships in Leyte Gulf. This was an extremely lucky break, and in the words of the grossly outgunned American defending admiral, I could not believe my eyes. There were a few more follow-on skirmishes as part of the larger battle, but the most notable aspect of the rest of the battle was the introduction of the Japanese special attack units to the battlefield, or as the air aspect is better known, kamikazes. Literally translating to divine wind, these kamikaze pilots deliberately crashed their planes into American ships. Kamikaze suicide bombers claimed an escort carrier in the Leyte Gulf and would continue to sink and damage ships throughout the rest of the war. And the attacks were successful. The numbers can vary depending on your source, but the attacks had an about 19% success rate, which was much higher than a conventional bomb or torpedo attack of the era. 3,800 kamikaze pilots died during the war, killing 7,000 of our sailors, and they sunk about 50 ships and damaged hundreds more. The mindset of Japanese society at the time produced legions of volunteers who were strapped into a plane with minimal training. Before departing, there were rituals, which included ceremonial drinks, the composition of a death poem, and a takeoff from an airfield lined with waving schoolchildren, and then a final salute to the homeland over their shoulder before searching for a final target. Today, Japanese culture is very different, and the Japanese are among our most capable and important allies. But I do think it is important to recognize the type of society that we were fighting against at the time. Fueled by a combination of total militarism, propaganda, perceived cultural superiority, racism, nationalism, and religious radicalism, the Japanese were inconceivably brutal to the people that they conquered and the prisoners they captured. And all of this is part of the calculus which will play out over the course of the final year of warfare. From our new air bases, we ran massive nightly bombing raids on Japanese cities. To make the bombing easier, we took another island called Iwo Jima in another unbelievably bloody battle in which we cleared out 21,000 fortified Japanese defenders from their caves, bunkers, and connecting tunnels. Each of the positions had to be cleared out at close range with hand grenades and flamethrowers. The Japanese commander of the garrison, this time, did not allow his men to waste their lives in hopeless bonsai charges. Instead, he ordered his men to remain in their tunnels and bunkers, forcing the Marines to come and get them. Of the defenders, only 216 were taken prisoner, most of whom were captured unconscious. 6,821 Marines and soldiers lost their lives for the island, and another 19,000 were wounded. Iwo Jima was the only battle in the Pacific War where American casualties exceeded those of the Japanese. From the air, it's hard to describe the magnitude of the destruction that we brought down on the home islands of Japan. And yet, Japan still held out. High-altitude bombings did a lot of damage, but it wasn't working fast enough for General LeMay, and so we switched up the tactic to low-level, nighttime incendiary bombing 
with the stated goal of burning the place to the ground. In one night, half a million incendiary canisters were dropped from just over 5,000 feet in the air on the city of Tokyo and burned 16 square miles of the city to the ground. That one night killed over 100,000 civilians and left a million more homeless. To LeMay, this proved the effectiveness. The incendiary bombings continued to apocalyptic results. Post-war analysis concluded that, quote, some 40% of the built-up area of the 66 cities attacked was destroyed, and approximately 30% of the entire urban population of Japan lost their homes and many of their possessions, end quote. This was justified by the Air Force in a total line war of thought with the argument that the destruction of the, quote, housing units of factory workers weakened Japanese industry. But most of the factories had been strangled of raw material by submarine activity already. The real reason was more along the lines of, you are beaten. You know you can't win. We know it. How many of you do we have to kill to drive the point home? The real hope of the Japanese leadership was to play the Soviets off against us. The Western Allies were technically allied with the Soviet Union, but now that the demise of Germany was imminent, that veneer of convenience was fading. The new great powers would be the United States and the USSR. With an army of more than 5 million soldiers still under her command, Japan hoped to play off Soviet fears of an American puppet in their Pacific flank to essentially get the Soviet Union to force us to let them off easy and remain independent. On July 26, 1945, we issued the Potsdam Declaration aimed at the Japanese leadership. In the declaration, we laid out the terms in which we would accept total Japanese surrender and the complete disarmament of her military. We promised that Japan would remain sovereign over her territory, that we would allow their soldiers to return peacefully home, that we would allow the Japanese economy to grow and trade, that our forces would eventually withdraw from the islands, and that the population would not be enslaved and would be granted a government which guaranteed their fundamental freedoms and democracy. On the other hand, if Japan did not surrender, they faced prompt, and utter destruction. The Japanese chose prompt and utter destruction. To that end, every male over the age of 15 and every female between 17 and 40 was called into military service to prepare for a fanatical defense of the homeland. Catches of weapons were hidden throughout the island, and the population was told to fight with rocks, sticks, fists, and teeth if nothing else was available. Based on the fanatical defenses of the outer islands and Okinawa, the conquest of the homeland would have two consequences. One, it would effectively be a self-genocide of the Japanese people. And two, it was estimated to cost over a million American casualties. 75 years later, through all of the wars in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and all the other conflicts in between, we as a military still have not worked through the stock of Purple Hearts we struck in preparation for the invasion of the Japanese homeland. It's in this context of Japanese continued resistance and the emerging geopolitical picture that President Truman dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And still, the leadership in Tokyo refused to surrender. And so we dropped a second bomb, this time a plutonium one on Nagasaki. After this, the Japanese cabinet debated. The war minister asked his colleagues, would it not be wondrous 
for this whole nation to be destroyed like a beautiful flower? In the end, the culmination of the Soviet declaration of war and the threat of more nuclear destruction led the emperor to make the decision to surrender. At noon on August 15th, Emperor Hirohito's surrender address was broadcast to the nation. Hirohito announced that, quote, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage, end quote. Japan, at long last, surrendered. Presiding over the official surrender ceremony was none other than Douglas MacArthur. Representatives of the nine countries at war with Japan met on the deck of the battleship Missouri. After the signing was complete, MacArthur closed with the following remarks. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. These proceedings are closed. This is the end of the three parts of World War II at sea. I hope you enjoyed it. There's far more material that I skipped than I kept in. And if you want to know more about any subject, I encourage you to head over to the local library and pick up one of the hundreds and hundreds of books written on the subject. Many are excellent. But if there are two lessons I hope you take away from the past three episodes, they are one, that war is terrible. This is true in any era, but in full-scale industrial war, more people are unlucky enough to be involved in the horribleness. And the second is that sea power matters. Control of the sea brought the weapons of war from American factories to the shores of Europe and choked off the island of Japan. It allowed us, the United States, to come out of the war with our homeland unscathed and set the tone for the Cold War to come. And so, this is where I leave this episode in this era. The next episode will cover the beginnings of the Cold War. MacArthur will continue to loom large before finally fading away. Atomic power will change the Navy and our mission, and I have a couple really interesting episodes in the works, which I think you'll enjoy. There's going to be a bit of a delay, though, and I'd apologize, but since I'm doing this podcast for free in my spare time and without any ads, well, you'll just have to accept that the Cold War episodes are still in early development, and it may be a while before they will come out. And so, please uh, do subscribe, and you can get the Cold War episodes delivered directly to you when they do drop. And if you tell just one person about the podcast, uh, I would uh, personally appreciate that. And it'll probably enrich the recipient's life as well. And so with that, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at US Navy Podcasts, or to email me at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com.